Good morning, everyone. Want to welcome you to our assembly. Invite you to take your Bible at this time and turn over to the book of Isaiah, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 55 and chapter 56. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time. So if you want to just turn there and and be ready in just a few moments, we're going to, to look at those two chapters. As Joe Powell was leaving, uh, she did stop and pause to say to me that they were headed to the hospital. She has a brother uh, that it looks like the time has come. They'll be taking off life support. Uh, so we want to continue to remember their family and our prayers, and certainly at this time, a uh, difficult time for them. Joseph. Where's Joseph? There he is. Young man, I, I trust I'll have other times to tell you, Lord willing, how much uh, we uh, love you here. Uh, but this being a moment of a big event in your life, heading up to Kentucky, uh, we're glad to know that you're going back to your roots for a little while to get Kentuckyized. Uh, hope that's a good uh, trip for you, a good time, and so much ahead for you. We, you will always be in our prayers, Mary, and look forward to uh, the great things that you will do as God opens doors for you in his kingdom. Is Gray here today? I, how could I miss it? Uh, congratulations, Gray. Uh, you can find out about that if you wish to, but uh, I had to tell him. Isaiah chapter 55, a glorious book, especially those latter chapters that speak of the exaltation of God's servant. Those latter chapters, the whole book is messianic and it's all sprinkled from chapter two, chapter nine, all the way through. There are so many great messianic chapters to think about the book of Isaiah being written uh, and having clear evidence uh, of, of the book of Isaiah being written, being part of the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, uh, which tells us, hey, look, you can say whatever you want. We can argue about dates and times, but here's a book written without question several hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene, uh, as well as Daniel and numerous other Old Testament prophets. And the picture that they paint of the kingdom of Christ and Christ himself uh, is powerful evidence for us as we look to the son of David and his messianic kingdom uh, as it was being promised to them, the ushering in of a new covenant in which the entire world was going to rejoice. Uh, this is the book in chapter 53, of course, where we have probably the most familiar for us uh, chapter of the book of Isaiah, the suffering servant, which we have so many occasions when we gather around the Lord's table to turn back to that chapter, to read about the servant who would justify the many and bear their iniquities. And as you come to chapter 55, and as you read these chapters, you know, there's such a New Testament ring to the chapters. Um, if you're familiar with the gospel and the New Testament story, as you read them, it's almost as though you're reading one of the gospel texts uh, because you just recognize the language that's being referenced here. So here Isaiah says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Uh, immediately we think of the Gospel of John. You can't read that without thinking of Jesus speaking to the woman by the well and saying to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then in chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And then John 7 in verses 37 and 38. Now on the last day, the day of the great feast, or the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. There's no question that Jesus is identifying himself with the promises that had been made uh, in the book of Isaiah and in the promises related to the, to the Christ who would come. In verses two and three, he says, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. according to the faithful mercies shown to David. It's that last phrase in particular that is important. When you get over to the book of Acts in chapter 13, Peter makes reference to the sure mercies of David and the fulfillment of that promise in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, this is what God was talking about when he spoke and said, I will not abandon his soul to Hades. And later when he talked of the sure mercies of David, he was talking about the Christ who would be raised from the dead. And you can go back and read that sermon of Peter in Acts, or Paul in Acts chapter 13. And then in verse 5 he says, or 4 he says, Behold, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Isaiah says, look, they're going to be and other nations, that another nation that's going to run to you. And he's speaking here with reference to the bringing in of the Gentile. So whatever God is doing here, he's doing it not just for Israel. This new covenant is going to be for the whole world to rejoice in. Uh, everyone is going to be blessed as a result of God's mercy in his Christ. And so he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. Then he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from the heavens, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy 
and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Here's an imagery of the, of the whole world rejoicing. The whole world is flourishing because of this good news that is going to go out of God's mercy and his pardon. And as you look at verse 13, the curse of the thorns is being lifted. When he says that in the place of thorns, cypress is going to come up and nettles, the myrtle is going to come up. That's a reference to the, to the curse that came because of sin that's now being removed. And the blessings of God are being enjoyed. Wherever this good news is preached and wherever it takes root, there is life and fruitfulness and joy. And then you come to chapter 56. And he says, thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this. And the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Eunuchs and foreigners were not allowed to enter into the sanctuary under the old covenant. The law did not permit it. And it, and it wasn't because God had forgotten them. Please understand when you, when you read those kinds of texts in the Old Testament, it isn't because God is trying to say to everyone else, somehow these are to be people that are to be viewed uh, in some way uh, as less of a, of a person. You're not to have the same affection to them. You're not to have the same regard for them uh, as your neighbor as you would for other people. He's not trying to say anything of the sort. God has always loved the world and God hadn't forgotten them. And Isaiah is making it clear he hadn't forgotten them. They were included in this plan of redemption and what God was going to be, had been doing and ultimately was going to fulfill. You need to understand that Israel was God's elect, not his elite. They were his elect nation through whom the world was going to be saved. That is, God was using them as the vehicle through whom the Christ was going to be brought into the world, through whom the whole world was going to be redeemed. And in choosing them, God gave them commands. God gave them a law. He gave them ordinances that, was going to, that were going to assist in their fulfilling that purpose uh, through keeping the law, they would be lights to the world. And as Paul says in Galatians 3, the law would be a tutor to lead them to Christ. It was going to be a means by which uh, God would accomplish his purpose in them. 
And so they were to keep the law. And one of the purposes of the law was to teach that there were barriers that needed to be broken down that stood between God and man. That the world was broken because of the curse of sin. And there was evidence of that brokenness in the world. Thorns were evidence of that brokenness. And so are things like uh, disease and lameness and being outside of the covenant of God. All those stood for the fact that there was a need for reconciliation. It wasn't that God didn't love the foreigner. It wasn't that God had forgotten about them and had no interest in them. Wasn't that at all? Or that God had set aside the people that had lameness or, or because of uh, other things that had happened to them. They weren't now allowed to come into the sanctuary. All of that was teaching. It was teaching that there were things that needed to be dealt with and that the curse of sin needed to be dealt with and it needed to be removed. The reality is God has always loved the world. And in Acts chapter 10 and in chapter 11, when the household of Cornelius is brought into the kingdom and you see the fulfillment of Isaiah beginning to take place, but... The verse that I would call your attention to is the one where Peter says, in every nation, the one that fears God and does what's right is acceptable to him. That's always been true. God has always looked with favor upon those who fear him and who do what's right. Even though we don't have the history of all the individuals who may have feared him in the foreign nations because they were not the elect. But you certainly see in the book of Jonah that God had an interest in and was dealing with and loved and had no desire for the destruction of foreign cities and nations. There's a lot of other ample evidence. But the book of Isaiah speaks a great deal about the bringing in of the Gentile as do other texts as well. But in verse six of this, he says, also the foreigner who joins himself to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord. The foreigner's going to be brought in. The eunuch's going to come in and find a name better than sons of da and daughters. You remember in John 10 and verse 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I think again, clearly referring to the fact, look, this is not just for Israel. What I'm about to do is for the whole world. They're going, all nations are going to be streaming to this kingdom. And I'm going to tell you, I don't believe at all. It's no accident. And in fact, it's remarkable. As you start reading the book of Acts, and the book of Acts begins to unfold this going out of this good news into the world of God's redemption in, in Christ Jesus. It's not by accident that in Acts chapter 8, that you have in one of the early examples of conversion, the Ethiopian eunuch who's been to worship at the temple, who would not have been allowed to go into the sanctuary because of his circumstance. And yet as he's reading what book? Where is he reading from? Isaiah. Where? 53. He's reading the, this section. 
You think you'd ever thought about this promise in Isaiah 53 of this suffering servant who was going to come and as you keep reading in that scroll and he sees himself there that the eunuch is going to be brought in and he's going to receive this great blessing, reconciled, given this memorial within the house of the Lord. You think he'd thought about that at all? And wondering who's he talking about? He saw himself there. It's not an accident that that's recorded. Of all the conversions that we might read about, of all the, it's not just there to say, here, I want to give you one more text about baptism. It's certainly a good text for that and other things, but that's a big text. It's Isaiah 56 coming alive right there before us as the good news is going out. And this man hears the gospel and he goes down into the water, into the servant's blood, and he comes up and, and goes on his way rejoicing, knowing he's now in the temple. He's come into the sanctuary of God. What a text. And you just keep reading a few chapters later, and there's a Gentile by the name of Cornelius, a man who feared God, but was not one of the elect. He was a Gentile. And he hears the gospel and is baptized with all of his household. And it causes a stir in Jerusalem until Peter gives the account of it. And you can go home and read Acts 10 and 11 to hear the Gentiles coming into the kingdom but after they hear the account, it says they quieted down and glorified God, saying God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Again, it's no accident for us that right after Acts 8, you have the story of the Gentiles coming in and what you're seeing unfolding as the good news is going out. As Jesus told them to, to all the world, Isaiah is becoming a reality. The promises are being fulfilled. The sure mercies of David and the covenant that God had promised is becoming a reality. Now, I want to focus particularly this morning for the time that we have left on, on verse 7. He says, the foreigners will join, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. I want to ask you the question, what, what is it that made their sacrifices acceptable on God's altar? That's, that's great news. You know, as we've been talking in our Bible classes about being people of the book and our commitment to following the instructions of the Word of God. I don't want anybody to think, because we've been dealing with some very fundamental and basic issues that are important to deal with. But I don't want anybody to think that even though we're focusing on what might be considered the more mundane issues, 
that we've lost sight of the weightier matters of what it means to be a servant of God. Don't think that. Did you know that A told B and B told C? I'll meet you at the top of the, you may know, coconut tree. Wee! Said D. T E F G. I'll meet you at the top of the coconut tree. I can tell you that whole book. I read it a thousand times the last couple of months to Daphne, who would grab my hand and say, Are you booking the rocking chair? And she's the 11th grandchild. And I read that a thousand times to all the other ones. Because you start with the little ones talking about A and B and C and D and E and F. That's not to say that the English language is all about letters and consonants and sounds, but we understand that those are the building blocks. But the English language, its richness isn't experienced uh, merely by knowing those building blocks. You have to know them if you're going to read and write and really enjoy it. So I want you to understand there's a place for the building blocks. There's a place to teach A and B and C and all of those things. And, and don't ever despise that. And don't despise hearing it, even if you've heard it for the thousandth time or read it or had it preached to you. Others need to hear it. Rejoice in it. Just rejoice in that. But I want you to understand, nevertheless, that... There's deeper things that we need to get to. Obviously an acceptable sacrifice, it should be obvious to us, was a sacrifice that would be offered according to the ordinances of the law. That should be clear. When Antiochus Epiphanes offered up a pig on the altar of the Lord, a revolt began that we call the Maccabean revolts because it was so offensive to the Jews and their sensibilities, an affront to the law that they held dear. They wouldn't stand for it. Someone might ask, well, you know, I know that's what it said, but pigs are fine animals. Ham's my favorite thing. Why would that be such a big deal? Well, because the law made a distinction between clean and unclean, holy and profane. This was the altar of the Lord upon which only those things that He had commanded should be found. And so when Jehovah said, offer a lamb, and when He said, offer an unblemished lamb at the Passover, not only was it important to obey what God had said, we also understand that He was teaching them as well, wasn't He? An unblemished lamb was to be offered there on the altar. There's some important symbolism that God was communicating in the sacrifice that there would be a sinless lamb that was going to come and be offered as the sacrifice that would be the offering for the sins of the world. And the Hebrew writer tells us that the sprinkled blood on the altar pointed to the sprinkled blood of Christ that would be sprinkled on our hearts by which our conscience would be made clean. 
So the teaching there, if, if they just forgot the law, all of those lessons would be missed. So it's important that we realize God teaches as well. The offering up of the first fruits. Not only was it given to God because they saw him as the benefactor of all good things, but it was also an act of faith that there was more to come, that God had promised he would provide for them. And we could spend several lessons, I think. It'd be easy on why it's essential and meaningful to offer things up the way that God commands. But beyond that, and this is what's being emphasized in Isaiah 56, the sacrifice is acceptable because the worshiper is acceptable to God. That's what's really being emphasized here. The sacrifice can be made by the, this particular worshiper because God is pleased with the worshiper. And this is what I want you to see. It's always been true that the focus of God is on the worshiper and not the physical sacrifice. That's always been true. It's, this isn't new. It's always been true that he has focused on the worshiper and not the outward structures. So all of us are familiar with Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's one of those passages that we use a lot to talk about offering ourselves up as a living sacrifice, that our whole lives are offered up in worship to God and, and that's what is acceptable to Him and pleasing to Him. But that doesn't mean that there aren't specific things that God asks us to give to Him as worship. When we read Romans 12, that's just giving us that great view of what it means to give ourselves to Him completely. That's the big picture. But, but along with that, we understand, yeah, we're to offer up prayers. We're to eat the Lord's Supper and come to that altar. We're to sing praises to God and to each other. We are to do good to one another. We are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. We are to minister to the saints. All of those things are things we do. But before we bring those offerings, we're to join ourselves to the Lord. Well, you mean be baptized. Well, yes, yeah, certainly that's included. But I mean in the Romans 6 sense of the term. Being buried with him and raised up as a new creature, a new person, as servants of righteousness. I want you to note four characteristics of these acceptable worshipers in the book of Isaiah. In verse four and six, they join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord. That last song we sang before I got up here, that's, that's what we're doing now and that's what we expect to do forever. Because as we appreciate what God has done for us, the life he's given to us, we're going to want to sing about his love for us. And we're never going to get tired of that. Never. You know, one of the essential steps of salvation that we talk about, maybe you remember one of our earlier lessons in people of the book, is repentance. We must repent. Acts 2 verse 38. We have to repent if we're going to come into a relationship with God that is acceptable. But most of the time, when we talk about repentance, we talk about what we are to repent from. You know, 
We're to turn from sin. We are to repent of sin. That's what we're leaving behind. We're turning. But we don't always talk as much as we should about what we're turning toward. We're turning from sin, but we're repenting toward God. We're repenting in our heart in his direction. And so in Acts 20 and verse 21, when Paul is talking to the elders at Ephesus, he reminds them how he had been solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel message is meant to change our hearts and minds about God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we know him. We know him as he was never known before. He's always been known as a God of love and mercy and provisions. And Israel knew him as their deliverer, as their creator. But they didn't know him as the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he hadn't made that known fully yet. But we know him now in that fullness. And we love him. As we hear the gospel and see who he is, we turn to him. And our hearts become his. And we keep the Sabbaths. That's number two. He keeps from profaning the Sabbath. Can't you imagine someone saying, I Isaiah, Isaiah. Now, now, you know the Sabbath is no more important than the other six days, right? I mean, yeah, we got this one day. But there are six other days. And, and they're just as important that we remember the Lord as, as the Sabbath day. You can't just keep one day of the week and expect to be right with God. You think Isaiah knew that? You think the Lord knew that? But the Lord speaks of the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath and emphasizes the Sabbath because he elevated the Sabbath as the cornerstone of their spiritual and covenantal lives. And keeping the Sabbath was an expression of their drawing near to God. Keeping the Sabbath was about trusting God. And it was about celebrating His rest in all of its dimensions. Embracing God's gifts, not as a, a burden, but as a blessing. It's having a relationship with God that's as precious as it is priority. That's what the Sabbath is all about. I want to tell you the first day of the week is not unlike it in that regard. It has its place for a reason. And if you think anybody that talks about the Lord's day, which it's called, I didn't call it that. <laughs> you want to tell me, you know, the Lord's day is no different than the other six days. And we're, I know we're to serve God 24 hours a day and every day he's to be ours. But if you think the Lord's day is not set apart, you haven't read your Bible. It is. And this moment that we're in right now is a celebratory moment. It's a moment when the saints have come together and we see each other's face in the light of the Lord. We sing these praises and we remember who we are and it's a special moment. Don't let anybody rob you of it. 
Don't let any preacher rob you of it. Don't let any elder rob you of it. Don't let any friend rob you of it. Make you think that it's no different than any other day. You could be walking into the Walmart praying or going somewhere else, and it's no different than what you've done this morning. A pox on that. This is the Lord's day and the Lord's people have gathered in the Lord's name and met it around the altar and taken the Lord's supper together. You tell me it's like any other moment or day. It's celebrated. And you keep it and honor it. It'll make you stronger on those other six days. Choose what pleases me. God has given us an indescribable gift in Christ Jesus. We bring our sacrifices to him. We're not trying to say when we bring our sacrifices, Lord, here's a payment for what you've done. But it's perfectly okay to speak in terms of the debt that we owe. We're not trying to outgive God, but we do want to do what pleases him and not ourselves. I don't remember the flowers, but I always laugh whenever Phil talks about giving his wife the wrong flowers all these years, saying, I thought that's what she liked. And then if I, no, honey. That's not the right flower. Here's the one that pleases me. And thankfully, he changed which flower he's going to give her. What pleases the person we give the gift to? That's the goal. That's why we read the book. We want to give him what pleases him, not what pleases us. And too often we can be bent on what pleases us. And, and this can be daunting. I, I read the psalmist in Psalm 116, verse 2. He must have felt it when he said, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? What, what could I possibly bring him? What could I possibly give to him? How about your heart? How about that? How about Today, just decide for all his benefits, for his love, for his gift. You know what? I don't have much to offer, but I'm just going to surrender my heart to you. Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And lastly, they hold fast my covenant. And the reason they hold it fast is because it's been written on their hearts. Jeremiah 31 promised it. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3 says that's where it's written. We hold fast to it. It's part of us. You know, the book of Joel is another great book with messianic implications. Joel 2 in particular has messianic implications. And in that chapter, there's a call to repentance. And verse 13 says this, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. I tell you, Isaiah stirs me when I read it. I, I, I get thrilled reading the text and seeing it then become alive in the New Testament. 
We have this hope. We have the sure mercies of David, the good news to go out. We know what God has done to restore fruitfulness to the world, to bring into his temple, into his house of prayer, to allow us as priests, a kingdom of priests to God, as Peter would describe it, come to him this morning and offer up to him in worship. We know the price that was paid. And we love to sing about it. We love to talk about it. We love to celebrate it. We love to rejoice in it. We love to share it. And what we're saying this morning is, this was for you if you're here this morning and, and you're not part of this house of prayer. You're not yet sanctified as a priest. And you wonder, what can I do to be acceptable unto God? How can I worship Him? Who am I to even think I could, could approach God? Well, you're made in His image and one whom He loves. You've always been in, in His mind. Always. Because He loves you as He's loved the whole world. And when He made His promises of redemption, those promises included you. And it didn't come at a small price. You know, God didn't want us always with our head down, going around all the time saying, well, I'm so unworthy, I'm so unworthy. So we're so unworthy and you're unworthy. But God provided a sacrifice. He sent His Son to allow us to be cleansed from sin, to be holy to Him. And so that our sacrifices can be acceptable and we ourselves can draw near to Him. Will you give Him what He's seeking? Your heart? And you express that by saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one Isaiah was talking about. This Lamb of God. I see He is the one who came to bring these blessings. He's the Son of God. I want to follow Him. And I want to follow Him into the waters of baptism because that's what He asked. Repenting of sin, turning to God in my heart, and joining Him in His death to be raised up a new creature. We'll help you with that this morning if that's what you desire. While together we stand and sing, please come forward.